Well, take your Bibles and go to John chapter 13 again. John chapter 13. We'll be picking up our study through this passage in John 13, verses 33 through 35 today. John 13, 33 through 35. Let me just read those three verses. We'll have them in our mind, and then we'll reference them as we go through our exposition today and looking at Jesus' instruction to his disciples and how to live life with him without him. And this really begins to get into that theme in full force. John 13, beginning with verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for the other. Let me give you a test if I can. Just kind of sit back and take your mind in a place long ago and far away. The year is AD 50. You're a Christian and you wanna be faithful to share the gospel. You're a new Christian, you're a, uh, your newfound faith has caused you uh, quite a ruckus in the neighborhood. Uh, people are curious about you, they wanna know what you know about this, this Jesus, that man who performed many miracles, that man who taught so many strange things, that man who was so brave on the Temple Mount. Then an incredible opportunity presents itself to you. Next door to you is a pagan neighbor, a neighbor who worships many Roman gods, many Greek gods. He worships a lot of gods that he doesn't even know just to make sure he's covered. This incredible opportunity presents itself to you in this. He and his family ask you over for dinner. You're excited, you show up, you're, you're ready to give your best, you're ready to give the gospel, you're ready to talk to him about Christ and your found, newfound faith in the Savior, and you are super, super excited. When you get there, it even gets better. Because once you sit at the table, there's another knock on the door, and another person comes to the table. Sure enough, it's a friend of yours from your church, another believer, there at the table with you. This is now unprecedented. Two believers and an unbeliever in this unbeliever's house, and he's asking you about the things of God, asking you about Christianity. As dinner starts, the servant brings out some, some choice cut of meat, some juicy, perfectly prepared steaks. Smells wonderful. You can hardly wait to dig in. Slice that thing with your knife and fork and enjoy that steak. But then your friend from church does the unthinkable. Just as the two of you are kind of tandemly tag-teaming this unbeliever about the gospel, your friend from church, with a bit of drama and pride, says, where did you get such great meat? And the unbelieving host says, well, I got it at a very good price, from the back of the temple of Diana. You say, what's that about? 
Well, as you know, the sacrifices were made day in and day out all throughout the pagan temples. Well, what happened to all those animals? Those animals were sacrificed, and then they were butchered. The priests there were butchers, and they would butcher them up, cut up the meat. And it was very good meat because only the best were sacrificed. And then on the backside of the temple, they would sell the meat. It was just a meat market. Your unbelieving friend says, I got it down back in the temple of Diana. He's very happy, very proud of this cut of meat he's offering you. Then your friend from church at the table turns white and then green, and then you can see panic on his face. His conscience is instantly pricked. He turns to you and says, I can't eat this meat. It was sacrificed to an idol. This is bothering me. Now you're in a pickle. You have to make a choice. Now, you know there is no such thing as an idol. There's no such thing as a false god that's behind that idol. There is nothing wrong with that meat. If it was at a good price, have at it. There's nothing inherently in the, in the, uh, the texture of that meat that's this pagan. It was offered to an idol, which doesn't even exist. You know it's simply good meat at a good price made by your neighbor that you're now enjoying. You also know something else, though, that your friend from church is violated in his conscience. He can't possibly take a bite of this meat because the thought of the association this meat has with that idol is way too much for his conscience to bear. So here's your choice. You have to offend somebody. You have to offend the unbelieving host by saying, I can't eat this meat. It was offered to an idol, and it's, it's, this is in deference to my friend who this is uh, bothersome to, and so I'm not going to have dinner. It's pretty rude, isn't it? Or you have to turn to your friend, kick them under the table, and say, be quiet. This is an evangelistic opportunity. Don't you see the opportunity we have here? And offend him. What would you do? What would you instruct your children to do if they were in that situation? Well, Paul actually addresses that exact scenario in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 27 and following. And his answer comes as a surprise to many. Paul simply says, do not under any circumstance offend, drum roll, your brother. You offend the host. You don't accept the meat off of the idol. Why? Because he says in, in a very dramatic example, it's more important to maintain the brotherly love and the conscience of your believing friend than it is your unbelieving host. Strange as it is, that's called Christian love. Paul wants us to know that we're to love each other as believers, not as much as unbelievers, but are you ready for this? We're to love each other as believers more than we love unbelievers. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 is simply applying the words spoken by Jesus here at the Last Supper in John 13, 33 to 35. Let me remind you where we are in this, this narrative. It's Thursday night, the week, of, the week of the Passover. Tomorrow is gonna be Friday. That's the day before the Passover. Jesus is going to be crucified and he has to be buried before the Passover starts at sundown. 
Jesus has assembled his 12 disciples to have a final meal. We call it the Last Supper. This is the Passover meal with the full knowledge that he's going to be betrayed in just a few minutes. He also knows that in a few hours he'll be fully betrayed by the Romans coming and arresting him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's gonna be tried overnight and crucified the next morning. Jesus knows every detail of this. As the dinner begins, everyone is getting situated and settled and enjoying a good old-fashioned argument. What are they arguing about? Well, the synoptic gospels tell us they're arguing about who's the greatest and who's gonna sit where not only in that table, but who's gonna sit where in the kingdom when Jesus becomes king, what they think is gonna happen tomorrow. Jesus is gonna be king, he's gonna be in the temple. Where do I get to sit? Do I get to sit close to you on your right or your left? James and John were actually sending their mom to try to coerce Jesus to give them good seats. Jealousy is in between these disciples. There's a little bit of bitterness. There's, a, there's eye contact going on. There's elbowing going on. There's sex different going on, uh, uh, groups going on during the, uh, uh, the Last Supper, um, different um, sections of, of disciples saying, I'm with you, I'm with you, no, I'm with you. You, you, uh, you're, you sit here, I'll sit there. Jesus is seeing all this, and in a quiet, humble display of love, realizes that no one has washed the feet of the disciples. Remember, this is about a foot and a half high table with pillows all around it in the U shape. They would sit all around the table. The servants would come into the middle to prepare the food and to serve the food. Pillows all around, and your feet were in each other's face. And Jesus realizes that, gets up, takes off his outer garment, girds himself, washes the feet of the disciple. And you can hear the room get really quiet. He gets all the way to Peter. Remember, Peter says, no way, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you can't have any part of me. He says, then then wash all of me. Then there's an interplay between John and Peter and Jesus and Judas. Jesus says, one of you is gonna betray me. And the strangest thing happens. Instead of all of them saying, who is it? They all say, is it me? That's a vote of self-confidence, isn't it? Is it me? Is it me, Lord? And they begin talking, and then there's eye contact between Peter and John. John was laying close to Jesus. It actually says he's putting his head on his chest. And Peter says to John, which one is it? Find out who it is. He asks Jesus, and Jesus says, it's the one to whom I dip the morsel into the, 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 the sauce, the cup, and I give it to him, that's the one. He immediately takes it, gives it to Judas. So now Peter and John have been identified, have seen the identification of Jesus, of Judas, that he's a betrayer. He gets up and leaves. You would expect that maybe that would be something they would all discuss. That's not what happens. Jesus immediately grabs the microphone, maintains control of the room, and says, now is the son of man glorified. Jesus predicts, responds to Judas, says, what you do, do quickly. He leaves, and he says, now the suffering begins. Now is the Son of Man glorified. You know, this week I was reading more about that, and J.C. Ryle, uh, in his constant way of putting things in wonderful simplicity, says this about that. I can't improve on it. Let me just read it to you. 
Ryle says, the crucifixion brought glory to the Father. It glorifies his wisdom, faithfulness, holiness, and love. It showed him wise in providing a plan whereby he could be just and yet the justifier of the ungodly. It showed him faithful in keeping his promise. The seed of the woman should bruise the serpent's head. It showed him holy in requiring his law's demands to be satisfied by our great substitute. It showed him loving in providing such a mediator, such a redeemer, such a friend for sinful man as his co-eternal son. The crucifixion brought glory to the son. It glorified his compassion, his patience, and his power. It shows him most compassionate in dying for us, suffering in our stead, allowing himself to be counted sin and a curse for us, and buying our redemption with the price of his own blood. It showed him most patient in not dying the common death of most men, but willingly submitting to such pains and unknown agonies as no mind can conceive. When with a word he could have summoned his father's holy angels and been set free. Been set free. It showed him most powerful in bearing the weight of all the transgressions of the world, in vanquishing Satan, despoiling him of his prey. End quote. You know, Ryle's right. The greatest glory of God was demonstrated in the horror of the suffering of the cross. Jesus, sending out Judas to start the betrayal, says, now, now it begins. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now, this is significant because now that Judas is out of the room, he's talking to his 11 faithful men. He knows their hearts. He knows them well. He knows the death that they're all going to die faithful to his name. Judas is out of the room. His instruction now intensifies. What's he gonna tell them? After he says, okay, now I'm glorified. Now, now the train's out of the station. Now the suffering begins. What is his first lesson going to be for them and to them for how to live life with him when he's not there physically anymore. Primary on Jesus' mind of things to talk about is to simply tell them this. Guys, men, you must love one another. Of all the things Jesus could have discussed, of all the things he's going to discuss in these next few chapters, Nothing was more important. Nothing occupied the primary place of first place in his discussion than that of loving one another. Even more dramatic, it's in the context of his glorification through suffering and death. That's the first thing that comes to his mind and off his lips after he talks about his death. Little children, verse 33 says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I said to the Jews. Now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What is this? Well, now we find, if you want a little outline to follow along, we find, first of all, the context for Christian love. The context for Christian love. What is this context gonna be? Well, he says love one another, but that's not, that's not out of nowhere. It has a context. He turns and calls them little children, technia. It's the only time that, uh, that Jesus uses this word. It's the only time it's used in the gospels. He calls them little children, a term of endearment, sincere affection, telling them they are very special and very dear to him. 
With the leaving of Judas, the inauguration of his glory through suffering now begins. Jesus knows the clock is ticking. The hourglass is turned over in the race toward the cross the next morning. In just a few hours, his relationship with these men will be forever different. They had enjoyed a special relationship with Jesus for for three years. They lived with him. They slept out in the open with him. They uh, uh, shared apartments and condos and, and houses with him. They had countless meals with him. They heard him teach. They had constant access to him. And now, after all of that, he says, little children, special friends, now I'm gonna be gone. I will be with you a little while, just a few hours, and then everything's gonna change. The door has hardly closed behind Judas when he says, I am with you a little while longer. He also attaches it, notice, uh, uh, to the Jews. He says, as I said this to the Jews, you'll seek me and you won't find me. When did he say this to the Jews? Well, just follow along as I give you a quick tour. John 7, 7, 33, Jesus therefore said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. He told the Jews, I'm gonna be here a while, then I'm gonna leave. They said to themselves and no doubt speculated, he's gonna leave the country. He's caused a stir, he's gonna run for his life. John 8, 21, he said to them again, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin where I am going, you cannot come. Then John 12, 35, Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. He says, look, the light of the world is in your midst. I'm not gonna be here forever. Take advantage of it now. It's been six months since the Feast of the Tabernacle when Jesus told the Jews this very thing. I'm not gonna be with you very much longer. You'll seek me and you won't be able to find me. Six months. But now he's not talking about months. Now he's not talking about weeks. Now he's not talking about days. Now he's talking about hours. Hours. I will not be with you longer, much longer, from just a few hours from now. What does that mean? What is he talking about? Well, he's saying that the day-by-day physical presence with Jesus will cease and they're going to be left living a life just like you and I do with him, without him, by faith. I'm gonna leave. Now, I know what you're thinking. No, hang on. Jesus is gonna rise from the dead. He's gonna spend a couple of months there with them and then he's gonna ascend. That, we all know that. But he's speaking of that time when he's not gonna be there anymore after the ascension. Someday that intimacy will not only be restored, it'll be bettered in heaven. But the days of walking around the capitalists and Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, those are gone. Look down at verse 36 for a minute. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but what? You will follow me Later, He's talking, obviously, about heaven. Where I'm going, you're going to be someday, but you're not gonna be there tomorrow. So what's the context for Jesus' command to live in a, in, in a sphere, in a realm of loving one another? What's the context? The context is when he's not here, physically. Why? We're gonna find out in a minute, because when Christians love each other, 
It displays the special presence of Christ in a way that nothing else will, nothing else can, nothing else has. We are living in this context. Jesus has ascended. He's in heaven. He's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He's gone physically. One day he will come again physically. And physically he will come on the Mount of Olives. It will split. The geography will be changed. He will literally physically rule from Jerusalem. But not now. He's preparing them and us for what do you do between now and then? How do you live life when Jesus is with us spiritually but not here physically? He's gonna give us lots of instruction on how to deal with him in that relationship. It's impressive to me that the first relationship he deals with is not between us and him but between us and each other. He doesn't even talk about us and the lost yet. That'll come later. He says you have to first of all prioritize your relationship with other believers If I can borrow from my father who would have said, at this point, Jesus is going to get in our kitchen. Now we come, number two, to the command for Christian love. We've seen the context for Christian love. Now the command for Christian love. This is in verse 34. (coughs) A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Remember, remember, remember the argument that's going on. The disciples have been doing just the opposite of loving one another. They've been jealous. They've been covetous. They've been putting each other down. They've been saying, I want to sit in the best place that the other guys can sit wherever they can find a seat. They're arguing and bickering with each other. Jesus is looking at a group of guys who are basically not getting along at his last supper with them. This ongoing argument about who is better and who is more important. It almost sounds like you're walking into a junior high cafeteria. But no, these are the the 11 faithful disciples. And they're having this argument. A new commandment I give to you to love one another. Is this new? Well, all you have to do is read the Gospels. This is not anything brand new. This is new, however, in relationship to their new state that they're going to be living in where Jesus will no longer be with them. It's new also in the context of the, uh, the association he gives. Look, at the, look back at the verse in verse uh, 34. Even as I have loved you. Now that, that is a loaded statement that has caused a lot of consternation with commentators. Is he talking about the three years? Is he talking about eternity past? Is he talking about the foot washing? What is he talking about? Well, we have an answer to that if you'll turn back to John John 13, verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So is he talking about the love that was before the foundation of the world, the love that was since they were born, the love of the last three years, or the love of washing their feet? And the answer is letter E or F, all the above. Love like I have loved you. In the moment of sacrifice and the foot washing, yes. But they'll remember this tomorrow night after he's paid the ultimate sacrifice for them as well. 
Jesus is, has been teaching this over and over. Remember Matthew 5? You can just listen. Verse 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so, they may be, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the, his son to rise in the evil and the good, sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you have love for those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same as that? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there he says, love everyone. Be a man, be a woman of love. Then in Romans 8, 37, but in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. He loved us. And then in Revelation 1, verse five, apart from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of kings and the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins and by his blood. The example of Christ's love for us is the foundation of our love for one another. Our perpetual example lives in the scripture of Jesus. But remember John's verse in, in John's context in chapter 13, verse one, where he says he loved them from the beginning all the way to the end, never a diminishing, never a side trip, ne never a, an off-track moment. He constantly loved these men. We'll find out in John 15, verse 12, he'll come back to this. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And we'll save our comments for when we get there in John 15. John 15, 17, this I command you, that you love one another. Okay, Jesus, we get it. What does it mean? What does it mean to love one another? John interprets this for us. John actually has an exposition largely devoted to explaining what Jesus meant in these, these chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16. This instruction is kind of summarized, categorized, and exposited in his book of 1 John, his first letter, 1 John. In 1 John 3, 11, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, here's the important part. One another just doesn't mean everybody. It doesn't mean every person who's ever walked around that you have an acquaintance with. One another means specifically other believers. Now, to fully understand this, I need you to turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter four, because John is going to take great lengths to explain what he believed Jesus meant by this love for one another. It's all based on Christ, Christ's example, and it's all based even more than that on the example of God himself who is love. First John chapter four. And let's just work through this text together. 1 John 4, beginning in verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another. Remember the children's song? I just hear it in my head every time I, I, I see that. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. We could spend the next 10 weeks on that. 
people who really genuinely love others are like God who really genuinely loves others, who give to others what they don't deserve, which is exactly the way God himself loves. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. There you go. There's a little uh, um, check on our salvation. If you're a hateful person, you don't love God. By this, the love of God was manifest in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. That's that glory that John was talking about when he quoted Jesus in John 13. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the savior, the propitiation, the payment, the penalty for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us like that, we also ought to love one another. Stop right there. One another. Who is one another? John has very specific ways of talking about unbelievers. In chapter two, he calls them those who are citizens of the world. Here when he's saying one another, he's talking about other Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. If God loved us, we should love one another in the same way. Verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now John begins to grasp and grapple with and explain what Jesus said. I'm not gonna be with you very much longer. You're not gonna see God in the flesh walking around the hills of Judea, the temple mount of Jerusalem. No one's seen God at any time, but... If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is incredible. When believers love one another, they are showing a visible manifestation of the love of God who's invisible. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. One of the evidences of the spirit filled life is you love other believers. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We've come to know that we have believed the, the love which God has for us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. The solidarity of those who love one another is the solidarity that we have in the Savior. Verse 17, by this love is perfected or matured, manifested with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. What is that about? This is so incredible. He's saying your confidence in your security and your salvation, your confidence in facing the day of judgment is actually bound up in how or if we've loved other believers. Why, how, what does that mean? Look at verse, 21, verse 18, rather. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Do you see this in context now? He's saying that not just love makes you not fearful in some general generic sense. He's saying if you love one another in the church, in, in, in believing fellowship, then there's no fear in the judgment because you've been obedient to God. This is about the solidarity of Christians caring for and loving one another. We love, though, verse 19 says, why? 
because he first loved us. If someone says, hey, hang on, I love God, but he hates his brother, it doesn't say a neighbor. John uses the word neighbor elsewhere. He, say, he hates a, another Christian, another brother. He's not a Christian. Look at what it says. He's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That's John's explanation of what Jesus says here in John 13. Here's a new commandment. Love one another. Jesus will say over and over in these coming chapters, the world, the lost. That's not who he's talking about here. He's talking about loving one another. Another Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That's what he told the Roman Christians. Give them preference and honor. So what does that mean? What does it mean to love one another? Let's get practical. Let's, let's get in the kitchen, as my dad would say. You can't really love people you don't know. It's impossible. Oh, you can care for them. You can, you can have a, a, a familial kind of affection for them as a relationship, but you can't really love them. Love is not possible with mere acquaintances. It means knowing one another. Love costs. It means setting aside our interests in order to meet the needs and wants of others. Love has a price tag, and it's your, your life. Love is a synonym for humility. Philippians chapter two says that you put others' interests ahead of your own. That's love, that's humility. Romans 12.10 says it's the act of giving preference and honor to other believers. Here's the catch, above yourself. That's the catch. Can I be very specific? Just take a minute and look around the room. You can look around the room. These are the people that God is most interested in you loving, caring for, giving preference to. So what does that look like? How are you doing it? How are you loving your brothers and sisters at Mission Road Bible Church? Yeah, we should be doing it to all believers anywhere and everywhere. I fully affirm that. But it first and foremost is practice here in our fellowship. And what is love? It's giving preference and honor to others above our own comforts and desires. How can you tell? Well, there's a couple of quick checks. You can check your, your, uh, your checkbook or your visa statement. Does that reflect selfishness or does that reflect service? You can check your calendar does that reflect selfishness or does that reflect service? You can check your conversations. Does that reflect selfishness or does that reflect service? Jesus says, you must love one another. Twice there, love one another. That's those 11 men loving one another who have been bickering and complaining and fighting with each other. He says, guys, you gotta love one another. Why is this so important? Why is this so supremely important? Well, we find that out in the next point. The consequence of Christian love. The consequence of Christian love. Verse 35. By this, by loving one another, 
all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other or for one another. Now, if I, if I could, I would ask everybody at Mission Road Bible Church to take out your pen and underline that and make that the theme verse for our church. By this, all men will know that you are a Christian, that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. How, how clear is that? I can explain this to a four-year-old and it would be simple. Jesus now identifies love as the identifying mark of a Christian, but not generic love, love for other Christians. Perhaps the most attractive, infectious, contagious, inviting characteristic of the church is how we love one another. Put another way though, perhaps the most damaging, disinteresting put off about the church to the unbelieving and watching world is how Christians disagree, fight, and exercise selfishness with regard to one another. Why? Because true love means selflessness. Selflessness. Putting others ahead of yourself. What's the essence of the gospel? Jesus said, deny who? Yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's others-oriented, beginning with believers. Here's the, most, the strongest evangelistic tool the church has. The strongest evangelistic ploy and strongest evangelistic plea, the strongest evangelistic strategy the church has for an unbelieving and lost world is how we care one for the other. We want them to look into what we do for one another and say, I'd like to have that. I'd like to be cared for like that. When we care for them more than we care for each other, we're doing the exact opposite of what Jesus' evangelistic strategy was outlined to be. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He says we know that we're saved because we love other believers. He who does not abides in death. Now he's really getting our kitchen. Salvation is proven, not provided. Salvation is proven by whether or not and if and how we love the brethren. Again, we read it a minute ago, 1 John 4, 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, a fellow Christian, he's a liar. And the one who does not love his brother whom, God, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Love for the brethren is the supreme test then of your faith. I don't know how, how much more clear Jesus could be here. The world will know that you belong to me when you love one another. So how are we doing? I wish we could take the rest of the afternoon and just kind of sit around, maybe have some lunch together and sit around the table and say, how are we loving one another? I think we'd have some ways that we could identify that would be incredible and special. If we would go around and say, how have you been loved by other people in this room? We could go on and on, and that's wonderful. But just as Paul said to the Thessalonians, we need to excel still more, right? Love is a supreme test of Christianity. Most think that faith is the supreme test for Christianity. It's not faith. Let me just say it this way. It's easier to exercise faith than it is to demonstrate love. 
Love means sacrifice. And when Jesus says, love, love as I have loved you, what does that mean? Well, how long do we have? He washed their feet. He cared for them. He fed them. He chose them before they were even born. And he died for their sins, leaving us the example. I mean, those little bracelets, what would Jesus do? We kind of make those trite and silly. What a great concept. How would Jesus love? What would Jesus do? Our evangelism must be connected with our life in the church. How strong is it to say, come and be a part of the family of the redeemed community. Be a part of the family of God that genuinely loves one another. Sure, we have disagreements, but we work them out. Sure, we have arguments, but we solve them. Sure, we have lapses of communication, but by the biblical principles that we apply, we can come to agreement. We're just going through John chapter 13. I, I didn't have any agenda when I got to John 13, but I think the Lord did. He's telling us, how do you love mission rotors? How are you involved in this body? How are you serving others and making their lives better because they know you? Just as he said in Romans 12, how are you preferring others in the body and honoring others in the body? Here's a great uh, assignment for us at lunch today. Go around the table and ask, okay, how are we, or maybe better, how can we love others in the body in a way that honors Christ and it demonstrates to them that we love them just as Christ loves them. You say, whoa, 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 time out. What about loving others? What about loving people outside the church? He's gonna get to that in, in just another chapter. But he says, they're gonna know that you really belong to me. Unbelievers will have the assurance that you're a real Christian when you love your brothers. The worst possible thing they could hear is, is you bad-mouthing other believers, especially that are part of your church. This is our family. We belong to Christ, our, our Lord, God, our Father. We are his children. Our spiritual siblings belong to the church. I'm only with you a little while longer. When I'm not, act like you belong to me. How can we do that? Because we love one another. Now, this is what's discouraging. Can I give you a little hint about what's gonna happen next week? Um, you know, Jesus is telling them this. Um, I'm with you a little while longer, and, and I'm, I'm gonna go away. And you would think they would say, wow, that's impressive, that's important. What in the world can we do to love one another better? Verse 36, Simon Peter says, well, where are you going? The whole lesson goes right over his head. He, Jesus says, I'm going somewhere, but while I'm gone, love each other. Jesus, and Peter says, forget the loving each other. Where are you going? I wanna go there. We don't wanna be like that. We wanna pause with, with the Lord. He's gonna answer Peter next week. But pause with the Lord and say, wait, 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 wait. Before we worry about where you're gonna be and how we access you then, the lesson is to love the brethren. Go back and spend some time in 1 John 4 
and look at how many references there are to the brethren and to others. That's the church. If you don't know Christ and you're a part of this uh, meeting today, our hope is that you see that we love each other because we love God and he loved us. And the gospel is alive in our lives because it was alive in, in the heart of Christ to give love that we didn't deserve, to cause us to love others in, a ways, way, in ways that they don't deserve. And then we get to receive love in ways that we don't deserve. Let's pray together. Father, your love for us is, uh, is on every page of the Bible. It's manifested in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's shown in the humble service of foot washing and in the eternal purpose of election. It's shown in the, the willful sacrifice and obedience of our Lord on the cross when, when he could have summoned those angels to come and rescue him. Convict us, Father. Show us our selfishness. Help us to rise above that and to give love and preference one to the other so that when a lost and dying world comes into contact with someone in our fellowship, they can easily say, I would love to be a part of that group of people because they care so much and so intimately for each other. We wanna do this for your glory. We wanna do this for the good of those who know your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.